The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark 14. We're going to begin today in verse 53 as we continue teaching through our series in the book of Mark. And as you do, I want to encourage you to think about drama, specifically courtroom drama. We love that stuff. We enjoy courtroom drama. Law and Order, Boston Legal, L.A. Law, Damages, The Practice, Matlock, from Perry Mason to Judge Judy, we have been, since the outset of television, inundated with a number of television shows focused around the idea of the American justice system of some flavor or another. Some of the most iconic scenes from any movie of all time come in dramatic moments of a courtroom setting. Twelve angry men, when they're back there, discussing what will happen in the jury room to kill a mockingbird. A few good men, just to name a few. There are many others. Perhaps some of you here have read books about law. Perhaps some of you have read John Grisham books, which are all fictional, but all based around broken elements of our American court system. And for those novels, he earns a residual annual income of $17 million. That's not his new books. Those are his old ones that are selling. We as a people are obsessed with courtroom drama. We are obsessed with the notion of the justice system. And I think the reason for that is that we are obsessed as a people with justice. Whether we understand that or not, and to the extent that we we seek to organize our thoughts around that, I think that we all are consumed with the idea of justice, especially when an injustice has occurred to us. What's really interesting to me, though, about these shows and these movies and these books, is that most of the time we, the audience, know before the courtroom drama begins who is innocent and who is guilty. We know what we are expecting or what should happen in the courtroom. We know that that person is either supposed to get off the hook or is supposed to go to prison for a long time. The drama is not found in whether the person is guilty or innocent. The drama is whether or not the court gets it right. The question is, do the lawyers present all of the evidence? Do the witnesses tell the truth? Is the jury biased? Does the judge give an appropriate sentence? Sometimes, both in fiction and in real life, the justice system gets it wrong. And it devolves into a flurry of inequity and corruption, even though this is the very system designed to protect and to guard the innocent against false accusations. Sometimes it fails. And in the text that we have arrived at this morning, we're going to see a miscarriage of justice at every single turn. And the God of justice himself will stand silently before an unjust accuser, namely the Sanhedrin. And spoiler alert, this is the point of everything that I am about to read to you from the scripture. That he, Jesus, stood condemned. He stood condemned before this council, and he would continue to stand condemned And he was found guilty so that we who have every right to be contemned might be found innocent. So now I please request that you follow along in your own copy of the scriptures as I have the great honor of reading to you from God's holy word. Mark 14, 
53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Please join me as we pray. Our Father in heaven, as we approach this solemn text, God, I pray that we would not come to it thinking to ourselves, I know this. But Lord, let us come to it humbly, desiring to know you, desiring to be more aware of what Christ suffered on our behalf, to become more aware of who we are before a holy God, to be more aware of what it means that we have been justified by our Savior. Please, God, today I pray that each one of us in this room who know you will be inflamed with joy, knowing that Christ suffered in our place. I pray that we would be consumed with Christ, that we would be desirous to live for him, that as we grow in a love for him, we will become more like him. And God, I pray for anyone in this room that does not know you in a saving way, regardless of how well they know the passage or how many times they've heard it, whether this is their 500th time to know the truth, to hear it, or the first, God, I pray that you would work in this sermon in ways that I cannot do. Lord, I am unable to change a heart, but God, I pray that you would change us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In order to best serve you this morning, I'm going to guide us through these verses using the following structure. First, we're going to consider a motion for mistrial. Secondly, we'll look at further examination of the evidence. And thirdly, we'll see the verdict. And then afterwards, we'll consider a few practical applications to close. Let's first begin with a motion for mistrial. Now, there are many factors that can take place in a trial that can lead the judge to declare a mistrial. This usually happens when there's some kind of a breach of the law that makes the proceedings of the trial unjust or that a just verdict is impossible. Perhaps evidence was falsely gathered and illegally gained so that it's no longer eligible for use, and then when used in court, they must declare a mistrial. Sometimes there's a split jury and they can't come to a decision, so they must declare a mistrial, which, by the way, I think is unique to the United States. 
But there are many reasons. There are thousands of them, in fact, that court cases all the time are considered mistrials. I'm going to take the next few minutes to to make a case that this trial of Jesus that is in our text this morning is an egregious failure of the justice system deserving of a mistrial. Mark, as he so often does, presents to us the trial of Jesus in a very condensed manner. We know from the other gospel accounts, this is not the very first aspects of the trial. This is not the first encounter Jesus had in his being tried. In fact, Jesus went through a total of six trials, and I'm putting them up here on the screen for you, and I'll walk through them with you so that you can see a little bit about where these things are and what we'll see in the book of Mark. First of all, Jesus was led to Annas. Annas was the former high priest of Israel. He was made to be the high priest by the Roman government, and then five and a half years later was removed by the Roman government, and they sold that position to another person. Eventually, they would sell that position to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the man who is now the high priest, who is the one leading this gathering, this trial that we're about to look at. In fact, the trial takes place in his home. And we find that in our text today, Mark 14, 53 through 65. The Sanhedrin will again gather. We see this taking place in Mark 15, verse 1. It's very short in Mark's gospel. They gather again about 5 o'clock, maybe 6 o'clock in the morning, and they determine what are they going to do about this? How are they going to present this to the Roman government that morning? And that's the, all three of those trials are all ecumenical trials. What I mean by that is those trials are determining the religious problems with Jesus. But then it's handed over to the Roman government for his civic trials. And in that we see the first trial of Pilate in Mark 15, 2 through 5. Although Mark does not give us this account, we know from the other accounts that Pilate says, I'm going to hand you over to Herod. He doesn't know what to do. And then Jesus stands before Herod, completely silent, before he says, I don't know what to do with you, and sends him back to Pilate. That's when we see Pilate eventually coming down and saying, I'll give you Jesus or Barabbas. Today, we are only focusing on the second part of the ecumenical trial. We are focusing in on the trial before the Sanhedrin at the house of Caiaphas. There was not a single branch of government. There was not one aspect of their political structure that was left out of the equation of Jesus' death. Groups and individuals who often hated each other, these people hated each other and struggled for power against each other, joined hands for the common cause of crucifying the Savior. But right now, as we consider the ecumenical trial before Caiaphas, we will see 12 reasons why this trial is illegitimate. According to the scripture and to the legal code of the Jews found in the Talmud, we are going to declare 12 reasons now why this should be considered a mistrial. And I'll go through them pretty rapidly, so... Put on your thinking caps here. First, night trials were illegal. By the way, in America, they also are illegal. You cannot try somebody in the middle of the night. Sundown till after morning sacrifice, it was against the law to have any kind of group standing in judgment. This was to ensure, just as it is to this day, that nothing sneaky or underhanded would take place during a trial. In fact, most scholars agree that this trial in Caiaphas' house took place from about 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning, when any sane person would be dead asleep. But they were hidden away from the sight of the public, quite intentionally. Here's a second reason why this should be considered a mistrial, because of bribery and collusion. Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2 says this, 
You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Now the Sanhedrin had joined hands with a wicked man to be a malicious evil. At the very moment they agreed with Judas to pay him for the whereabouts of Jesus. And here in Mark's account... We simply read in verse 55 when it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus. They were seeking testimony against him to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But Matthew's account, I think, presents this in a a, a very important but slightly different nuanced light. In his account, he reveals to us more clearly that the council was not seeking truth. They were not just looking for witnesses and seeking to find a real story. They were seeking lies. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-nine puts it this way. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. They were searching out for lies against Jesus so that, they might be, so that he might be put to death. Now from the outset, they had already determined Jesus was guilty. This was not a real trial. They were just searching for anything that they could pin on him, any slight ounce of reason that they could give to the public for his execution. That's all they wanted with this trial. Here's a third reason why this is an illegitimate trial. Because it was illegal to begin court proceedings without an official charge. In Mark 14, 55, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against him to put him to death, but they found none. Why was Jesus arrested? Why did they go into the garden with the soldiers and the torches? And why did they bring him in in an arresting mode to this place in the middle of the night? How is it that they had the right to do this? Well, according to their law, they had none. He was taken to court without being accused of doing anything wrong. And when they got there, they realized, oh wait, we have to pin him with something. His arrest itself was entirely illegal. Here's a fourth reason. Because it was illegal for the Sanhedrin to hold a trial anywhere except for in the chamber of hewn stone, which is part of the temple complex. This ensured that the courtroom would remain visible, that it would be open to the public, that people could go in and see what they were doing. And it was also mandated by the Talmud that there would be at least two impartial witnesses to the trial who were not able to be present at this trial of Jesus. Their job was to be, like, think court reporter. That's what they do. But Jesus was not tried publicly in the chamber of Hugh Stone. Instead, he was taken to the house of the high priest, to the guy's home in the middle of the night, and condemned in secret. Fifth, It was illegal to have trials the day before the Sabbath, and closely linked to that, sixth, it was illegal to have trials before a holy day. Jewish life was a predictable pattern. It was a rhythm and flow that could be easily manipulated if you wanted to hide something from the public. And since the presidency of JFK, we've seen something similar here in the United States. It's been common practice by presidents and and, presidents Republicans and Democrats of both, uh, both parties to release important information that they expect to be unpopular when? Friday night. They call it the Friday news dump. Why do they do that on Friday nights? Why do they release all this important data then? 
because they know that everyone in America has something better to do on the weekend. And by the time people start to care again on Monday morning, this might have died down. In the time of Christ, there were no push notifications. There was no internet. There was no news outlet. So if you weren't there or you didn't know someone who was there, then you had no idea what was happening. So the Jews had made laws requiring that cases could not be held during the preparation for the Sabbath. Think about it for a moment. What would you do if you knew from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, you could not do anything that constituted work? You would have to work hard to prepare. Therefore, on the day of preparation, Friday, no trials allowed because people are getting ready. And especially as they are preparing for the greatest, most important day of the year, the Passover celebration, there must be no trial. Yet, this so-called trial of Jesus broke those laws. Here's the seventh reason. It was required that in capital cases, in death penalty cases, there would be a day between the trial and the sentencing. This was to ensure that the court did not hastily send somebody to their death. And I think that's very important. It's a weighty thing to hand down a death penalty. And in order to ensure that nothing was done in the heat of the moment, the law of the Jews required a buffer day. Then the Sanhedrin would reconvene and they would vote again concerning the penalty. But Jesus, he was not afforded such a thought or reevaluation. He was condemned by Caiaphas around three o'clock in the morning and six hours later was on the cross. Eighth, it was illegal to make a judgment based on the testimony of one witness. Even if that witness is the accused individual himself. This command is repeated many times in the Old Testament. In fact, about four dozen times you'll find it present in one way or another. But never more clearly than in Deuteronomy 19.15 when it says this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall, shall a charge be established. That's it. Yet the Sanhedrin were unable to find two testimonies that agreed about Jesus. Why couldn't they find that? Because he'd never done anything wrong. If they dug that hard, looking into your life or mine, they would find some way that we are full of blame. But not Jesus. He was completely blameless. Here's a ninth reason. The high priest was not allowed to speak in these cases. When the Sanhedrin stood in judgment over someone, he was not allowed to speak during the case, but was required by law to sit as an impartial observer, and he would only make a case for or against if there was division within the Sanhedrin. He functioned like Mike Pence does right now. He's the tiebreaker. However, it's Caiaphas that takes on the role of both judge and jury overstepping his bounds during this court case. We're going to focus on that a little bit more, so I'm going to wait and save that for later. But here's a tenth reason this is an unjust trial. The defense was never given an opportunity to make its case. The moment that Jesus admitting to being the Messiah and the Son of God, the high priest tore his clothes, which, by the way, is spoken about in three occasions in the Old Testament, to be completely illegal. Leviticus 10.6 is probably the most clear about that. Jesus did not have anyone to stand for him and make a defense. No one stood up and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have something to refute what you've said. 
I can defend him. I can stand for him. Which, by the way, was a breach of Jewish law and tradition to not have the opportunity to defend oneself. Here's an 11th reason. Although it is not expressly illegal, it is absolutely immoral and unjust that at least two members of the Sanhedrin who were sympathetic to Jesus were not present at the trial. Mark 14.64 says that all condemned him. Everyone who was present condemned him. But we read in Luke 23.50-51, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, which by the way is the same council that's standing in judgment over Jesus here. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This guy wasn't there. He did not agree with this decision made by the council. We also know from the book of John that Nicodemus, who had been part of the Sanhedrin, had become a follower of Christ, and that he even assisted Joseph of Arimathea in burying Jesus. Yet it seems that Caiaphas's jury, that he was one of those <clears throat> rigged juries, the jury selection was rigged all the way around, he had gathered only those people who had already set their heart on murdering the Son of God. This was not an impartial jury of any kind. <clears throat> Here's the twelfth reason. <clears throat> the high priest charged Jesus with blasphemy. So we see in the text, right? <clears throat> what do they tell the Roman government? Do they tell him this man is a blasphemer? Oh no. The Romans don't care about that. The Romans don't care if you call yourself the Son of God or if they call yourself God. As long as it's peaceable, go for it. They believed in all sorts of deities. They had their own pantheon. No, they don't care at all that somebody might declare themselves to be the son of God. Yet they, they say, you're guilty of blasphemy. And then they go to the Romans and declare him guilty of sedition. That's not what the case was about at all. This was not only the most high profile case of all time. This is the most corrupt, biased, and unjust courtroom in history. Yet no one stood up to say, ladies and gentlemen, I offer you consideration for mistrial. No. Jesus, the, the God of justice himself, was tried unjustly by unjust men. But let's look, dig a little deeper here with point number two and consider a further examination of the evidence. And when the false witnesses had made fools of themselves and they had failed to produce a coherent testimony, the high priest finally interjected himself into the proceedings and he said, well, we'll get to what he said in a moment. Who is this? Who is this man who stands up? Caiaphas. Well, his name Caiaphas literally means the inquisitor. He was probably given this name after he took authority. We're not sure. But concerning his name, Kent Hughes once said, his surname fit him well as he was now presiding over the most infamous inquisition in history. This man, Caiaphas, was the son, uh, the son-in-law of the former priest, Annas. We know from Josephus that Caiaphas had purchased this position as high priest for a large sum of money. When a historian says a large sum of money, it's a lot of money. This man was interested in power. This man was interested in having authority. He wasn't interested in waiting to get it. He wanted to be in charge, and the high priest was the most significant Jewish figure in the land. It was ruling over the body of the 70 rulers of Israel. This man wanted power and authority, and he was keenly interested in keeping it, even if it required violence. 
So he hated Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has true authority. Look again to verses 60 and 61. It says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Jesus stood silently before Caiaphas like a lamb before a wolf. And he fulfilled the prophecy that Scott read for us earlier from Isaiah 53, 7, that like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Even in the midst of false accusation after false accusation, Jesus held his tongue. This seems to make the high priest even more angry. So in verse 61, Caiaphas declares, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? No more, t- no more testimonies. We don't need any more witnesses. Just silence. I just want to hear it straight from you, Jesus. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, although this has one question mark in your Bibles, this is really two questions that are being asked. First, he's asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that the scripture has foretold that will restore all that was lost in the fall? Are you the one who will bring, bring peace to God's people? Are you claiming to be the anointed one? And secondly, are you the son of the blessed? Please understand that this is a direct question about Jesus' divinity. All those people who say Jesus never claimed to be God, this is a question asking, do you claim to be God? As a child is of the same nature of their father, so if you are the son of God, you are God. So by asking if you are the son of the blessed, Caiaphas is asking Jesus directly, are you saying that you are God? Now this is the kind of question that would have sucked all of the air out of that room. You can just imagine, they always say you could hear a pin drop, I'm sure that's true. Whatever clamoring or chattering was happening in the crowd certainly stopped as Caiaphas looked with his hate-filled eyes on Jesus and demanded a response. And Jesus answered him. Now you you might be asking, why? Why not just keep your mouth shut again, Jesus? I mean, you've, you've heard all these accusations. Why not just be silent now? And I'll give you two reasons why he spoke up at this moment. First of all, Jesus was required by law to answer this question. Leviticus 5.1 states, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know of the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. In short, to fail to speak at this moment would have been considered the same as perjury in the Jewish court system. You must speak. You're being called upon as a witness. His very silence would have condemned him. So he spoke. And secondly, and more importantly, here's why he spoke up. Jesus answered because this was his plan. This was his purpose all along. He had already told his disciples on no less than four occasions, I must be handed over to the chief priests and I must be put to death at the hands of sinful men. Of course, they didn't understand it at the time, but he had told them this is coming and now he's standing before the very people who are going to say, yes, you are worthy of death. So at this point, When they speak truth about him, he agrees. Think about how absurd this is. There are two people in the book of Mark who have the clearest statements of the divinity of Jesus. One of them is here, Caiaphas. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And the second one is the man who was standing beside the 
standing beside the cross and said, as a Roman centurion, surely this man was the Son of God. And these two people who declared these things about Christ are two people that put him to death. Yet these are the ones who most clearly state the identity of the Savior in this book of Mark. So Jesus answered. He answered them because this was his purpose. This is why he was born. This mockery of a trial, this kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin, it was a necessary step of the gospel. Jesus had to be falsely accused and had to be condemned. So here he stands in full agreement, not embarrassed. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. But Jesus does not just answer with a simple yes. Oh, no. Oh, no. Jesus references one of the most potent passages about the Messiah in the entire Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And he said, I am the divine name of God. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Even a political hack like Caiaphas would have known and understood the reference that he was making. These words from Daniel were some of the most studied and discussed in the Sanhedrin during this time because they didn't know what they meant. So what do those verses say? Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him... To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Please understand what Jesus is doing here. When he references this passage from the Old Testament with one sentence, Jesus has declared, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the son of God. And he is declaring, I am worthy to receive honor from you. I am worthy to receive glory from you. I am worthy and have the right to have all nations and all people and all languages serve me. He was declaring that he alone has authority to rule over Israel and the rest of the world for that matter. Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, every other ruler that this world can throw at him, no matter how powerful or insignificant, top to the bottom, we all must bow our knee to Jesus. He was announcing that this authority was also not man-made or temporary, but it was divine and eternal, without end. And that phrase that he begins with, coming on the clouds, this is an important one. It does not simply mean that he's coming from the sky. Coming on the clouds literally means to come with an army. Whenever you see that phrase in Hebrew in the Old Testament, they're speaking about an army that is coming. And what does the clouds look, what does that mean? It's because they look out and they see the dust that is being trampled up by the horses and the chariots. And they say, look at the clouds. And they're coming on the clouds. Pharaoh's army is coming on the clouds. And he says, I will be coming on the clouds. He is declaring that they will see his judgment. So before Caiaphas can declare judgment or even tear his clothes, Jesus has passed judgment on him, declaring that judgment will come for all of those who reject his rule and his reign. Now, before we get all high and mighty here and condemn Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin for their sins, please recognize that each and every one of us have also likewise declared Jesus to be something less than he is. We have all put him on trial. Now, whether you grew up in church or you grew up in the world, it doesn't matter. None of us were born saved people. 
None of us were born Christians. And each and every one of us in our own hearts has thought little of Christ, thought nothing of Christ, run from him. The Bible tells us that we are rebels, that we are his enemies. And so when we look at this passage, we should not look at Caiaphas and say, what a jerk. How could he do this? How could he throw all of the, the knowledge he has about the court system out? How could he refuse justice? It's because he hated Christ, just like you and I have once hated Christ. You once declared Jesus a fraud and stood in shameful opposition to the rightful king of the universe, just like Caiaphas, just like the Sanhedrin. And perhaps today you're sitting here in one of these chairs and you're still in that place. Maybe you're thinking, maybe Jesus was a good guy. If that's all you think about Jesus, then this statement of judgment is one over you as well. Maybe you think, I can do it on my own. I can work my way to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. God, God should let me into heaven because I'm worthy of that. If that's you, this statement of judgment is about you and there should be no reason in your heart for peace until you turn and find the one who can save you from that judgment, Christ himself. Friend, if you came here today and you don't know Jesus, the Bible describes you as an enemy of God. And the the more powerful an enemy is, the worse they are. You do not want God to be your enemy. These words that I've just read to you from the mouth of Jesus should be chilling if you don't know Christ. So I plead with you to know that Jesus is not an unjust judge like Caiaphas, and he must punish the guilty. The Bible says that that's you and that's me, but there is grace to be found in Jesus. He was standing here condemned so that people who should stand before God condemned might be declared innocent. I'm not standing up here preaching the word of God because I'm a good person. I'm not. I might be compared to Hitler, but compared to Christ, I'm not. Compared to the law of God, I'm not. And neither are you. We all fall short of the glory of God, but friend, please know that he is patient. He has been patient with you, but his patience will not last forever. So turn and repent. Jesus died in place of sinners, the just for the unjust. So if you don't know him as your savior, I pray that you would please speak to one of us that's been up here this morning. We want you to know Christ because he's worthy of your life and because it's worth it to give up everything to follow him. So let's move forward now to point number three, the verdict. Read along with me again, starting in verse 63. Here's what it says. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now this verdict is dripping with irony. I mean, as you look at this, Jesus, God himself, was accused of speaking irreverently about God. But it wasn't insulting enough for them to condemn him. Oh, no. Now is their chance to get back at him for every time he has publicly shamed them, every time he has beat them at a debate in the temple courts, every time that he has spoken truth and they have not listened and their faces have turned red and it says that they walked away desirous to kill him. Now they have their chance. So what do they do? They spit on him. I can't think of anything more contemptuous than spitting in someone's face. It is the clearest way to tell someone, I hate you. And this was intended not only to tell him, I hate you, but also to shame him. Especially in the Jewish culture, 
to have spit on your face was a great shame to who you are. It says, then they covered his face and they began to beat him. This would just be the beginning of the physical torment that Jesus was about to experience that day. It's just the beginning. The Sanhedrin, they, they knew the scriptures. These men knew the Bible better than anyone alive but Jesus during this time. And as these men who know the scriptures were doing these things, and bl- they were blinded by their rage, and they didn't realize they themselves were fulfilling Isaiah 50, verse 6, which says, I gave my back to those who would strike, and my cheeks to those who would pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. They know this verse, yet they themselves are fulfilling it, blinded by their own hatred. Now, we should be incensed and outraged by the injustice of this trial. But although their verdict was wrong, please understand that they were not the only ones who were going to judge Jesus that day. God himself was about to pour out his own wrath on Jesus at the cross. Because as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes, we are healed. That is a spiritual healing taking place. It was an unfair trade, but a glorious substitution. He was condemned so that we might be set free. So where does this leave us? How should we walk away from this passage changed? Allow me to offer you five ways to grow here from the example of Christ. Although the first four I think are important and I think they're true, the first four are implications of this passage. The final one is the most significant, but I think all of them can help us grow to be more like Jesus today. Here's the first. As Christians, we should have a keen interest Injustice. Why? Because our God is a just God. He is the God of justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 89, 14. He is a just God. And our God is a God who requires that we imitate him by seeking justice to the best of our ability. There are literally hundreds of verses in the Old Testament concerning God's desire for us to live justly. But allow me to quote what may be the most famous passage from the Minor Prophets to you concerning justice. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There's no small list of injustices that take place on a national level every single day here in America or abroad. And although we can look around our nation and say there's a lot of injustice here, I can tell you from my minimal experience overseas that we probably have it the best out of most nations in the world in terms of justice, yet we still fail all the time. But more on a personal level, there are injustices that occur in your life all the time. And we should be willing to stand up for those who are unjustly treated. Think of this when you are at your job site. Think of this when you are dealing with the people in your circles, in your family. Treat them with justice and seek justice for them. Secondly, be confident when standing before wolves. I wonder what the disciples were thinking when Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, 
Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent, serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, again, I don't know what the disciples were thinking. I feel like sometimes they had selective hearing and they were like, okay, sure. Because that's not fun. That's not exciting. That's not your best life now. That is not, that is not the prosperity gospel. Jesus says you are going to be dragged in and accused falsely and to be sentenced based on my name. But he's telling them, when you get there, stand firm. Now, I don't know what they were thinking when they first heard it, but I do know going forward that they did stand firm. As you read through the book of Acts, we've read through the book of Acts recently with my kids during our family devotion time. And as we're reading through it, just over and over and over, as they're brought before these magistrates and rulers and leaders, they stand firmly and boldly. And I have to believe part of the reason that they can do that is because they know Jesus stood firmly in that room before the Sanhedrin, before Caiaphas. He's not asked them to do anything that he didn't first do for them. But I also want you to consider not just that he is an example, but consider what it says to us that he is going to himself speak through you. The spirit of God is going to be with you, speaking through you. Second Timothy chapter four, Paul is getting ready to be put on trial again. The final, this is the final chapter he's going to write, although he doesn't know it at the time. And he writes to Timothy about the trial he has just experienced before the Roman ruler. He says this, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. At my first defense, nobody came. No one showed up, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Now, you might have to stand before a court someday, and you might have to declare that you believe the truth of the gospel. I, I pray that day never comes here in the United States, but it could. That could happen. But I want to encourage you, don't shrink back in those days. But on a far more practical daily level, right now, you stand on trial before public opinion every time you are before the world. You are to be the light of the world. And the world does not understand what we do. They don't see why we value the things that we do. They don't recognize why we say good is good and evil is evil. And so as you stand on trial before them, when you are questioned, don't back down, but stand firmly in faith. Stand boldly, knowing that the Spirit of God will give you words to speak. I think you should absolutely study these things, study apologetics, study the Word of God. You should know these things and be prepared to give an answer. But please know this, when somebody asks you something you don't know the answer to, don't feel ashamed of Christ. Stand firmly. God's goal is not to make your life more comfortable. It's just not. It's not what he told the disciples. But his goal is to use you to spread the gospel and to build his kingdom and to bring him glory. So to God be the glory when you're treated poorly for his name's sake. Amen? Here's a third application for you today. When you are reviled... Do not revile in return. This was our New Testament reading this morning. Thank you, Scott. First Peter chapter 2, 22 through 23 says, 
he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Few things, maybe nothing else, can make our blood boil more than being falsely accused. If you've ever experienced it, you know that immediately you are filled with a desire to defend your, to your honor, to stand and say, I want my reputation back. How dare you declare that I've done something that I never did. But I want you to learn from your Savior. Entrust yourself to God who will always get the verdict right. When accused, do not sink to the level of your accusers. Instead, calmly, graciously, and openly tell the truth. And also, I think it's important that we remember, we're not like what it says in 1 Peter 2.22. It says that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. I can't say that about me, and you can't say that about you either. I think of Charles Spurgeon, and I think he said it best when he said, If any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. How true is that? Here's our fourth application today. Heaven will correct everything that the world has gotten wrong. Jesus was vindicated when the Father raised him from the dead. The martyrs who died for the faith, they were vindicated the moment they closed their eyes in death and opened them to see their Savior's arms, greeting them to heaven. They were vindicated in death. God in his providence allows sinners to get it wrong here on earth. He allows injustice for a time on earth. He has allowed this to occur... And as much as we might strive for or advocate for justice here, sometimes we're going to get it wrong. Sometimes we'll be on the wrong side of it. So I'm thankful for the the grace and the mercy of Christ. And sometimes we're going to be the recipients of injustice. Sometimes we're going to get the raw end of the deal. But heaven has a way of straightening all that out and replacing all that's been lost. Who cares about your reputation on earth? When you get to heaven and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Who cares about the money or the freedom that we could lose for righteousness sake here on earth when you get to heaven and you receive a great reward? Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, thinking nothing. That's what the word despising means, negligible, nothing. He was thinking nothing of the shame. We too can look to heaven knowing that we can endure injustice for the sake of Christ, for he is the just judge and he will always get the right verdict. John gives us this picture of what heaven will be like in Revelation 21, 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, some of the greatest words in the Bible, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Indicated in this is that they have tears in their eyes. He will wipe them away and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Heaven makes up for all the injustice that you might encounter here on earth. So don't back down. Stand firmly in your faith, trusting that God will always get it right. So let me ask you, are you living 
for Christ? Are you looking forward to being with him in heaven? Or are you prioritizing and focusing solely on the here and now? Is your gaze set on this life alone? For when we put this life first, we seek our best lives now. And then we necessarily become easily offended. We become sensitive. We become discouraged. We become depressed when we experience even the slightest forms of injustice. But when we remember that God has saved us and he is making his dwelling place with us, then we are filled with joy, joy even in the midst of the worst circumstances. Read missionary biographies, and what you will see over and over and over is the greatest trials that humans can experience. They've gone through them. And they don't come out saying, I've experienced injustice. God, give me justice. They come out saying, thank the Lord that I was able to suffer for his sake. Seeing this rightly, we should be filled with joy. Now, finally this, as I said before, all of these applications are good. I think they're important. But none of those that I've said before are the primary point of this text, I don't believe. But this last one, I think, is the main thing this text is supposed to teach us today about what we should do and how we should live. What is the main takeaway? What are we supposed to do? I think the answer is that we're supposed to do nothing. We're not supposed to do anything. There are no commands. There are zero imperatives. It is telling us that Jesus did everything for us. So our final application is this. Rest in him. Rest in the knowledge that the grace of God is greater than all your sin. Rest knowing that Jesus stood condemned so that you might be declared righteous. Be humbled by his willingness to silently stand before Caiaphas for you. You can't work your way to heaven. He's worked our way there for us. This has many far-reaching implications. When we rest in this, it's naturally going to lead us to obedience because we see and love and savor who Christ is. And therefore, we seek to honor him. To know him is to love him, and to love him is to obey him. So I hope that this picture that Mark has provided for us today has given you a better, clearer picture of Jesus. And I hope that this trial before the Sanhedrin encourages your hearts not just to know that this was an unjust trial, but that it would encourage your heart to love Christ more for his sacrifice on your behalf. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, there are so many things here in our text that I didn't even have an opportunity to cover today. God, your word is so deep and rich. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love your word and to trust in your word and to be consumed with it. God, I pray that today as we have heard these different things about your son, that they would not just be passing information that go in one ear and may stay there temporarily and eventually out the other. God, I pray that you please allow this to become life-changing, effectual, Christ-like change in our life. God, we desire to be more like your son. Help us in that way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.